Tavis Smiley. And I'm delighted to have you listening to our program today, our final hour today, in fact. Uh, I started out two hours ago saying we were going to try to squeeze an 80-pound show into a 45-pound bag. The squeeze continues. Seven guests today, not something I do every day. Uh, but it's been a great uh, two hours. I look forward to this final um, uh, excellent uh, third hour. In this hour, two conversations on the B side of this hour. Uh, today, President Joe Biden issued a sweeping executive order on AI, artificial intelligence. We'll talk with Dr. Joy Bolamwini about the revelatory work she's doing to address the myriad challenges of AI, specifically facial recognition, which we are told is fraught uh, with deeply ingrained biases. We'll talk about that on the backside of this hour. We commenced this hour, though, with this. In 1857, a woman escaped enslavement on a North Carolina plantation and fled to a farm in New York in hiding she worked on a manuscript that would make her famous long after her death. The novel, The Bondswoman Narrative, was first published in 2002 to great acclaim, but the author's identity remained unknown. Professor Greg Hekimovich unraveled the mystery of the author's name over a decade later, and in The Life and Times of Hannah Crafts, he finally tells her story. Uh, Greg Hekimovich, good to have you on this program. How are you today, sir? I'm doing great, Tavis. Thank you so much for having me on the program to talk about Hannah Craft. Oh, no, it's my great delight to have you on. Um, I know Skip Gates. I've known Skip well. And matter of fact, uh, through my own publishing imprint, I published one of Skip's books uh, years ago. So uh, he and I have known each other for, for decades, of course. And I, I, I came to know this story courtesy of Skip, Henry Lewis, Skip Gates Jr., Harvard University. Everybody knows Skip. Um, I came to first know of this story because of him. But as I mentioned, um, you did the, the, the work and did the research to find out who this woman actually was and uh, you've been rewarded for that work not just with a great book but with a book that has a forward by Henry Louis Gates Jr. So tell me about your coming uh, into the light of this story and then we'll talk about the research you did to unpack who this woman really was. Oh my, my pleasure. Um, I heard about this story when it was published in 2002. Mm. I was very interested, immediately read the novel and like most people at the time I was blown away it struck me as a work of genius. And like anyway, everybody else, I wanted to know who wrote the book. So Dr. Gates had done her, her, uh, just amazing work sort of setting the foundation for discovering the author. He was able to identify the enslaver, John Hill Wheeler, from which the author escaped. And I used that for the next 20 years. It was 10 years doing the research and then following up. Um, to pinpoint and actually discover her life story. And I'll just say that depended really on going into the descendant communities of eastern North Carolina in Bertie County and in Hertford County and spending a lot of time listening, going into people's basements, going into their parlors, and just listening as they were able to uncover bits and pieces of this history that they had in their attics or in the oral history passed down. So it took a long time, but with that work, we were able to discover and really recover her her fascinating life in this biography. No, we are forever indebted to you for spending two decades to do this. Let me just start with this question. It's a personal question. Um, and I could ask it of anyone who spends, you know, years working on a particular project. But 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 why would you spend 20 years of your life researching who this black woman was? And you ain't even black. I ain't mad at you. Again, we owe you a debt. But tell me why a white guy spends 20 years of his life trying to find out who this black writer was. 
right? It's, it's the same reason anybody would become obsessed with um, a history that they wanted to uncover. Mm-hmm. So when I read that novel, I was, it was profound to me that this escaped woman, somebody who, saw, who suffered one of the most difficult lives you could imagine, was able to write a joyous novel, a novel that demonstrated extraordinary literacy and artistic achievement. And I just had to know who that was. And, you know, I completely understand the idea that a white male scholar wouldn't necessarily be thought of the person to do this, but I I do think it's important to remember it's part of a continuity of time. So this manuscript, written by a woman who was a child born of rape by a white man and an enslaved woman, that manuscript got handed down to her mixed-race stepson, who then gave it to her white landlady, who sold it to a book dealer, who got it to the greatest African-American librarian of the 20th century, Dorothy Porter Wesley, and then somehow the manuscript ended up in the hands of Henry Louis Gates Jr., and then me and a bunch of other scholars worked on it. So it's, it's really this powerful team project, right, over generations. And I'm just very grateful to mm-hmm. have um, had the opportunity to spend that much time really learning from Hannah, listening to descending communities, and then uncovering that genius that I first experienced there, how to make a, a beautiful and joyful life out of the difficulties and, and fractures of slavery. No, uh, we are grateful uh, to you. Uh, you are grateful for the opportunity, and we're grateful that you took the opportunity to write the book. It's called The Life and Times of Hannah Crafts, the true story of the Bondman's narrative. Uh, the author is Greg Ekimovich, and when we come forward, we'll talk about Hannah Crafts. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. More of Tavis Smiley when we come forward. More honesty than you can handle. More empowerment than you can imagine. You're tuned in to Tavis Smiley. Tavis Smiley and Greg Ekimovich, um, and I'm delighted to have him on. In 2001, the earliest known novel written by an African-American woman, in case you've just tuned in, was Discovery. But for years, many were skeptical of its origins, and uh, Greg Ekimovich, a literary scholar, was able to f- verify the manuscript and has written a book detailing that journey called The Life and Times of Hannah Crafts, The True Story of the Bond Woman's Narrative, and I'm honored once again to have him on this program to talk about the search, his detailed search for the first black woman novelist. That said, Greg, take the mic and tell me about Hannah Crafts. Right. Hannah Crafts, as you noted, was America's first black female novelist. And against all odds, she was a New York Times bestselling writer, too, when Dr. Gates discovered that in pu- the, the manuscript and authenticated it. Couldn't identify the actual writer, but published in 2002 to great acclaim. She was born as Hannah Bond on the plantation of Lewis Bond in Indian Woods, North Carolina. And as I said, she was a child of rape by a white father, and the, uh, her planter father was named Lewis Bond. And um, her mother was a mixed-race woman named Hannah Sr. in slave inventories. She was orphaned at the age of 10 and brought up to be a house servant. And during her childhood, she stole literacy, a practice she continued later when she came to serve female college students in nearby Murfreesboro, North Carolina. In 1856, in Washington, D.C., she began writing a novel that she stole. I mean, she stole paper from her captor, John Hill Wheeler. We have the forensic evidence of her writing the novel on that paper she mm. stole and smuggled out of slavery. Um, and she, she did escape in May 1857, completed her novel in 1858. And then it's just such a wonderful story. She ended up marrying and living a very happy life afterwards. And that manuscript passed down 
through um, a very dear stepson. As she found from her broken life, she put a family together out of slavery. And it's, it's just really inspiring. To, that's a part of the story we didn't know. And, and doing that research, I was able to, to discover just that it's a joyous end to her novel. And she was kind of writing what she was pursuing when she mm. wrote that novel out of the bits and pieces of scraps of her life. I'm, I'm, I'm struck by, I'm not naive, but, but of course, uh, about the history, but I'm struck, uh, Greg, uh, by uh, your telling of the story of how she had to literally steal paper to yeah. write this story. Yes. Um, the, uh, her, uh, when I went, entered this scholarship, I was skeptic, skeptical. You know, there are laws against it. But what, what scholars have, have, have known are there's free-floating pockets of literacy. And in her circumstances, there was literacy within the um, plantation communities where she grew up in Bertie County. And this, again, goes to the Senate communities. A, a set of a family members shared with me, El Albert Bishop Walter Cray, um, shared with me a document that was discovered in their great-grandmother's um, uh, house later that they didn't know about where she talks about the literacy and the neighboring plantation to where Hannah Bond grew up. Later on in life, she ended up in a highly literate home, a literate home that also included boarding college students from a nearby Baptist female college. One of the things I do in my research is uncover how did this book, how is it so literary, so accomplished in, in, in its literary formations? And what you can trace in this fabulous way is the way in which the um, women she served were practicing college composition exercises. She was following those models, learning from them, and then making it her own by telling the story of slavery. It's absolutely astounding. Mm. You raised a point a moment ago that many people have not really um, paid attention to or taken time to wrestle with. We, we have this, we have this, 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 this image, this no, we have this notion that all slaves were illiterate. And, and to your point, there were pockets of literacy so that we now know that all slaves were not necessarily illiterate, unable to read or write. Yes, and it's um, what I think. I think it's surprising to many people, and the, I answered my research with, you know, there is a complete record of trying to shut down literacy. But you had this other sort of great awakening, this real religious awakening that was a, that was in a way um, encouraged for a period. And this is where people, this is where Hannah Crafts, her family, um, they, they, literacy was not completely shut down in their specific community. And um, there was a real religious life that captured and was engaged with, um, with, with, uh, with evangelical religion that was really deeply a part of this novel. It's no surprise she ends up in freedom becoming a school teacher and somebody very engaged in the AME Church in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. This book, um, uh, the, the book you've written about um, about Hannah Crafts uh, and 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 her her times, is really set against the backdrop of our slide um, into the Civil War. Uh, you've talked about her a bit. Give me. I, I could I could have asked this question this question and perhaps should have asked it earlier. Um, set the scene for me. What what's happening in America around this time? Yes, well, really important to her life um, is Nat Turner's Rebellion in 1831. Mm -hmm. Her enslaver, John Hill Wheeler, and this wasn't known, it's not in the literature, but when I dug into the archival history family papers, his family helped put down that revolt. And there was an extraordinary um, 
a spasm of violence that was a part of her childhood, lynch violence that, that was able to trace within her own family, her own grandmother. Um, this sort of violence was um, disturbing. And when many people first engaged this book, they, they, they saw the, what they saw as a sort of exaggerated violence, but not at all the case. She was living through that. And that was, um, during her life, there was a continued um, response and fear of, of further revolt. And what she did, and what I write about in the novel, is she found pockets of literacy and an underground network through eventually when she ended up living in Washington, D.C., the first, um, first colored Baptist church of Washington, D.C. It was a congregation that was separated from the first Baptist church by uh, connected in, in slaver. That, that little pocket there helped spirit away a lot of people, including Jane Johnson, another person I write about book. I'll just add one more thing. Sure. The book really explores this network of people she lived with. So it's not just her life that I'm trying to recover here. I was able to engage the other enslaved women whose stories she also used to write her novel. And, that, and I want to name them here, Millie and Martha Murphy, Eliza Morgan, Mary Burton, and this uh, figure that many African-American historians know, Jane Johnson, who was really important. Mm -hmm. Tell me more about how um, Hannah Crafts ends up or decides, in fact, to use, if I can put it this way, her, her literary uh, skills um, to push back against this institution of slavery, I, I, to push back against uh, the dehumanizing ways uh, that many were subject to who looked like her. So this, I love this question because it's there in the novel, and um, there's a scene in the novel, it's the showstopper of the book, where Mrs. Wheeler, that's her enslaver in mm. Washington, D.C., based on the real-life person, M Mrs. John Hell Wheeler. Well, in the novel, she goes out to seek a position for her husband who's looking for a government appointment. All this tracks with what is there that we know of Hannah Crafts when she's living with that family. In the novel, Hannah um, applies a powder to Mrs. Wheeler's face and a smelling bottle. It turns turns Mrs. Wheeler's face black. She has no idea that it happens. In the novel, she's punished for that. Now, this doesn't happen in real life, but what I was able to discover is Hannah Crafts was forced to go blackface minstrel performances with the Wheelers. They loved those things, and she'd have to sit in the uh, balcony and watch these white people mock black people in slavery. Mm. When she has her chance to tell her story, she flips the script, and it's the white people who are blackened and mocked for their foolishness, right? And mm. it's, just, it's just amazing. She's using the the. the the paper that she steals and the alchemy of literary imagination based on real life to make a contribution to our literature to uh, to totally take apart the 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 entertainment of white supremacy mm. how, how do you think and this is a broad question um, I apologize but how do you think um, her work fits into the broader um, uh, expanse of American literature I, you know, I think it's amazing. It's a foundational work in American literature, African-American mm -hmm. literature, too. And I say that when you look forward to, and I write about this, what, what she's doing there, she gets access to works like Uncle Tom's Cabin, mm -hmm. and this is when she's ser serving those female college students, and particularly, strangely, this novel by Charles Dickens, which was very popular, um, Bleak House. And she gets access to that, and what she does with the white arts of 
these um, the dominant uh, culture that she has to operate in, she finds what's good in there, like the powerful narrative devices, but she write, rewrites it from the perspective of an enslaved person. And what, what she's doing there really is, in, in a powerful way, is something we see amazing African-American artists doing, and it's even in her tradition as a novelist. When you look forward, forward uh, 150 years to Toni Morrison, Morrison's going to study very closely Faulkner, but mm -hmm. she's going to completely rework Faulkner in a way like we're astounded by. When I teach Mo Morrison, my students are down with it. When I'm teaching Faulkner, not so much. <laughs> um, I get the same thing with Hannah Kratz if I teach... Uh, the Mom Woman's Narrative versus Bleak House. Students pick up. There's this. There's this. It's built. They, they know how to. Um, both Hannah Crafts is doing the foundational work that we're going to see in future novelists like Toni Morrison or Jasmine Ward, who is this amazing contemporary mm -hmm. novelist who does this kind of amazing work. Yep. What do you make of the fact, though, that Toni Morrison was learned? Uh, Jasmine Ward is learned. Not so much for Hannah Crafts. Yeah. I think um, there, there's definitely a, a learning curve that Hannah has to develop. It's in some ways even more profound in some respects because she's manufacturing this high level of literacy. You can see in the manuscript where she's using punctuation in a, in a, in a fashion that's not common. It's, it's definitely somebody who's an autodidact. But the, the level of storytelling is astounding. It's why it was a bestseller in 2002. It's why when professors I know bring this in their classroom, it's the hit of their semester. Um, so um, that I think it goes back to your earlier question. There's astounding ability and reach for literacy that is there that we haven't been, we've been taught not to recognize um, in past, from the enslaved generation. I think there's probably more stories out there that were buried just like this one that Dr. Gates helped discover. Yep. How would you situate, I uh, asked earlier, how would you situate this book in the, the broader canon of American literature, but how would you situate this particular work uh, uh, by Hannah Crafts, uh, The Bond Woman's Narrative, uh, in the larger frame of African-American literature? Again, I think it's really grounding. It's it's uh, it's a foundational thing. Um, you, we usually look to Harriet Jacobs' Incidents in the Life of a Slave, mm -hmm. which um, was written in 1861, and that's written not far away from where Hannah bon, originally born Hannah Bond, Hannah Crafts um, uh, lived. That that foundational text, 1861, Incidents of the Life of a Slave Girl, has been astoundingly important to our study of African-American literature. And before that, Dr. Gates discovered this, Harriet Wilson's novel, Our Nig. What we have here is a novel that predates those mm -hmm. and demonstrates in dialogue, right? We, had, we, we have so little... Um, it, it, it expands our understanding of the foundation of African-American literature. It immensely enriches uh, what we know of the recoverable past of this really high-achieving literacy and literary ability of formerly enslaved people or black people. Yeah. Um, you have a quote. I want to close our conversation with this, I think, uh, the two minutes I have left here. You have a quote uh, at the beginning of your of your book, The Life and Times of Hannah Crafts, The True Story of the Bond Woman's Narrative. Uh, our guest is Greg Ekamovich, the author of this book. 
Uh, he did the work over two decades to discover who this woman was, uh, this first black woman to write a novel in this country. Um, but there's a quote in the beginning of your book that I love. I, I had never seen this before, was not familiar with it, but but I, I own it now. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and the quote says, autobiographies display the triumph of experience, but novels are acts of hope. Autobiographies display the triumph of experience, but novels are acts of hope. I believe that to be true. Now that you've now that you've turned me on to this great quote, um, but uh, that latter part I want to uh, probe just in, a, in the minute and a half I have left here. Uh, when we say that novels are acts of hope, um, take that and and tell me how her work was in fact is in fact an act of hope. Most certainly. So the most vivid th- vivid way I can say this. She's writing, she's taking the experiences of her life, many, they're autobiographical, they include stories of other enslaved people that she stitches in to her story. But it's, what's driving her is a sense of where her future can be. It's the imaginative arc that a novelist takes where you could write a happy ending. So when she writes her novel, her, her mother's taken away from her when she's 10 years old. Her mother dies in 1858. Right around the time that her mother dies and she's forever estranged from her, she's finishing her novel in New Jersey and she writes a happy ending where she and her mother are reunited. And there's a way in which, as she was proceeding to tell this story, to engage the difficult and uh, struggling lives of enslaved people, the act of hope was to imagine a better future yeah. and to create that in the novel like all novelists do. And, and there's a beautiful way, uh, as I research this, that, that what she was envisioning, she was able to acquire. She had to imagine yeah. a sort of freedom that she was able to reach and then joyously mm-hmm. exclaim by being a novelist. It's a beautiful act of hope, a beautiful act of hope, and I love that phrase. Um, uh, Henry Louis uh, Skip Gates, Jr., uh, brought many of us the story of uh, of this book, uh, the Bond Woman's narrative, but uh, leave it to Greg Hekimovich to do the rest of the work and for two decades do the research to, to write this book called The Life and Times of Hannah Craft, the true story of the Bond Woman's narrative and did the, the detailed research uh, to discover the identity of America's first black woman novelist. And for that, I repeat, Greg Hekimovich, we are indebted and we are grateful. Thank you for the text. Thank you for your time, sir. All the best to you. Thank you so much, Tavis. Great to be here today. Good to have you on our program. More of Tavis Smiley when we come forward.